Hello, and welcome to the Real Professional Podcast, our DreadX Collection Collection, the collection of episodes where we talk about the DreadX Collection. Uh, if that was too confusing, then clearly you haven't listened to this podcast enough, because it gets way more confusing than that. Uh, we're, we're doing this special little series here. As you might have seen, a ton of episodes have been coming out over the past week, uh, because we're trying to get interviews with every single uh, participant in the DreadX Collection uh, knocked out before we uh, start you know, doing the the releasing of the trailer and stuff. We wanted to make sure that uh, we had our proper introduction with all of our lovely rock star cast here. So uh, if you don't know what the DreadX collection is, uh, then where where have you been? It's got like a billion retweets or something. I don't know. Uh, it's a little project that we're putting here together at uh, DreadXP where we're reaching out to 10 indie developers and uh, we're asking what they can come up with uh, with just a week. So the idea came from we, you know, I've been talking to a bunch of indie devs and they'd all basically either come from game jams or said, I have this really great idea I've always wanted to do, but I've never had the time to do it. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the thing is, is that with the, the coronavirus happening right now, uh, a lot of people have the time to do things now. And a lot of people also uh, are kind of out of work. So I said, you know what, we should create a project that we can get 10 indie devs together for. They can work on making a project that they've always dreamed about making and uh, hopefully also, you know, get some financial gain out of it. You know, this is this is uh, the, the sad part about being an indie developer is that a lot of times uh, you're not able to do it as your full-time job. And uh, you know what, I think that that's the, the, there's a lot of things that can change within the industry to make it more accessible and acceptable of indie. And uh Hopefully, with the seven games, oh, sorry, the ten games, we made over seven days, but with the ten games that you're going to be seeing uh, from the DreadX collection, you're going you're gonna to just be seeing how talented and, and good of work you can get done by, by really, really good, solid people in a, in a short period of time. And uh, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that everyone at home likes it. It's a great variety with the ten different games. And, uh, you know, the, the big bonus here is that two bucks of every purchase of the $7 package is going to uh, Doctors Without Borders, which, you know, with, with us, uh, the idea of doing something for charity was always in our minds with this project. And as it was coming together, we were thinking, you know, I, there's there's no better cause than the, the health of the world right now. So uh, it's your purchase goes towards a good cause, uh, the good cause also of supporting these great indie developers. And uh, you get 10 really like wildly unique horror games out of it. Like I'm not even marketing pitch here. They're, they're really, really, really different. Um, so yeah, you can just go ahead and click the link below to be taken to the announcement page for uh, the DreadX collection. Hopefully by the time this goes live, the steam page will also be a uh, clickety clackable and you can go over there and put it on your wish wishlist. Uh, the, see the problem with having so many talented developers is that uh, they got things done way, way faster than I thought they would. And, uh, now we are just dealing with the getting the, the mechanics of getting the store page created, getting it up. And I appreciate all the people out there that have been very interested in this project, being patient with us about it. Cause, uh, I, I honestly thought that at least one of them would screw up and like not have their game out. We'd have to figure it out, but no, they all, they all followed through. So now I'm, now I'm the one that screwed up. So, uh, that'll all be done soon though, which is, uh, you know, how we like to do things here over at real professional. We are the air quotes real professionals talking to the non-air quotes so anyways uh without further ado we're going to be talking to uh Zlavier nelson from uh, strange scaffold about his game that he's been coming up with and also uh some of his previous works so uh i guess without further ado dj drop 
that sick beat. Insert beats here. Love it. Cool, thanks. Okay, and we're back. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Uh, yeah, for those who aren't familiar with my work, I'm Zolivir Nelson Jr. I... I'm so sorry, did I mispronounce it? Little bit. I thought it was sorry, Zalavir. My bad. You know what? No, we're all doing the best we can. It it is a it is a hard as hell time for everyone, especially when you come to like a name with like seventeen consonants, and you just go, okay, gonna take a swing at it. You took a swing. I appreciate it. Here's the thing: is that I always try to get it. I always try to get people's names right. Unfortunately, your name on uh, Discord. Is just you just go by Nelson on there, just just to avoid <laughs> the issue altogether. Yeah, I'm I'm unfortunately production brain to the point where I'm like, you know what, we can just we can make our communication fifty percent more efficient if just no one thinks about the first name unless it becomes necessary. <laughs> so Jesse, I'm just going to say Zolivir now, and then you can take this clip and insert it in the, in the previous part. Don't even cut this part; it's just to make it as jarring as possible. But get the name right. Can do. <laughs> so uh, sorry about that, Zalavir. I, I like I said, a lot of times the, the the relationships that you grow with these people are all over the internet, and you you know you you do your introductions once, and then you're a screen name forever. You know. Totally understand it. Um, but you're you are probably best known uh, for the the game that I uh, first experienced at. Out. Maybe not best known for, but I'd like, <laughs> I like—I know you best for—for for the dog airport game. Yeah, an airport for aliens currently run by dogs. It's—it's uh, it's weird how initially uh, there's a lot of, especially on the indie space, you know, that you get these like pockets of being known. So like one of my very first games was this thing called Screw You Bear Dad. It was an hour-long twine game about an anthropomorphic bear uh, accidentally. Uh, dropping into a facility in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and killing a man. And it was a two-perspective story of the people inside the facility freaking out about a bear being in the facility and this innocent bear wondering how the heck he got here. And then it becomes a two-perspective story as you're this bear figuring out how you got here, uh, choosing whether or not to wear the man's face because you're a confused bear in a new situation and you want to make good with whoever the people who are here and you're also the um, people running the facility who are freaking the heck out about a bear being in their facility. They're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. There's no way to really deal with this uh, chaos and drama and reliving of childhood trauma uh, so that you can move forward in Seuss, as one does. This and is, the, I, this is the, based on that Dostoevsky novel, right? I don't know which one, but yeah, absolutely. Let's say that. It sounds fancier <laughs> that way. <laughs> Is there a Dostoevsky novel about a bear that wears a person face? Uh, yeah, it's Dostoevsky's uh, The Brothers uh, Bear Karamazov? Mask. <laughs> Are you talking about The Brothers Karamazov? Yeah, uh, that's a very different story. No, my joke fell flat. Oh, I'm cool. Gonna, I'm going to cut this. Are <laughs> <laughs> uh, you do the bear the, the Karamazov or the, the Brothers Baramazov? Oh, yeah, that works better. Good job. You know, you two would be a great writing pair because uh, Jesse's got the non sequitur kind of brain style, and uh, Nelson's got the ability to bring it, uh, bring it all together. This is why I prefer writing to talking because writing I can workshop it. Like I can take my my jumbled, stupid thought 
and type it out and then delete it and then type it out and then delete it four or five times before I commit. Oh, have you tried, um, so this is, okay, so for what I do, um, have you tried narcissism? Because that really helps me being confident <laughs> in my opinions. I have not. What's the opposite of narcissism? <laughs> uh, probably healthiness, like a healthy perspective on life. Yeah, something, well, I don't have that, certainly. <laughs> uh, anyways, um, so, uh, yes, a bear there's care of bears off, whatever. Uh, you, so you, you made this, this game and you were bringing it to, you said some kind of game jam in London? Uh, yeah, I went to one of my first game events, which is this thing called Wordplay in London. Uh, my game was being showcased in the British library. I was freaking out and I walked into the room full of these, you know, interactive fiction, which is the genres in these interactive fiction luminaries. And someone asked me what I, what I did very politely, you know, this nobody. And I was like, oh, I made screw you bear dad. And then I'll like, th- like, Everyone in the vicinity turned around and was like, wait, you made Screw You Bear Dad? And that moment, it just my entire brain and my face lit up because it was like, oh, man, I found my people. Also, how did you know about that game? Um, so as, a, as an independent developer, you find these pockets of recognizability where people uh, get to know you. For some, it's my work with Skatebirds. For some, it's my work with Hypnospace Outlaw, which got nominated for a bunch of IGFs in the year of our Lord, Lucas Pope and the Return of the Oprah Den. <laughs> um, but yeah, surprisingly enough, now people are coming up to me being like, are you the dog airport game guy? Because I'm making a first person open world comedy adventure game about stock photo dogs running airports. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, uh, and now of course you're going to be most well known for your latest contribution to society, which is, uh, Mr. Bucket told me to. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> Clearly your greatest achievement. Um, I didn't actually know that you made uh, Hypnospace Outlaw. That's a really uh, – well, I don't know if you made it, but you worked on it. Yeah, I was the narrative lead. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting one. Uh, I don't think most people – so this is what you're – the interesting thing when you're talking about um, uh, those pockets of recognizability is that you can be wildly popular in someone's favorite game of all time with like – this one, you, you can walk into one uh, corner of Indiecade and everyone knows you. And then the moment you walk out of that one corner of Indiecade, no one knows who the fuck you are, you know? Yeah, it's it's one nice thing about Indie compared to other uh, sectors of entertainment. You can be the developer of some of the best-selling games of all time and go totally unrecognized even at a game event. Uh, and it's, especially if you know you're introverted or simply uncomfortable with a whole lot of attention it's nice to have the ability to create work that reaches a lot of people without bearing the personal responsibility of oh god i have to get a really good uh i have to get a really good uh, security system now because folks are going to want to you know knock on my door and meet me they're going to make pilgrimages to my house because i made undertale Mm -hmm. god that'd be weird yeah. It's like, um, you know, I was, we, we interviewed, uh, David, uh, the desk dev for the last episode. Uh, and you know, it's kind of cool because I think that everyone in this discord has kind of like gotten to know each other pretty well just because of the amount that they talk. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, David is like a really like a, a astoundingly normal guy. Like he's got two kids and a wife and like, he like goes to bed at like 10, and, like, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's just a total freak, total freak. Um, but that's not what you'd imagine when you think, oh, this is the indie guy that made Dusk. Like, you'd probably imagine him being like, 
I don't know, kind of like a super edgelord or something, but he's just like a normal, normal guy. And I feel that um, a lot of times that's what's interesting about the indie space is that um, there's, you know, like what you're saying with people like who made Undertale? Fuck. What's his name? Uh, Tyler to- Fox? Toby Fox. To- to- Toby Fox, right? Yeah. It's like um, I can't imagine what it's like to be him going from, hey, I'm, I'm just like a guy. And then I made Undertale. And now people are like weirdly obsessed with me, you know? Yeah, it 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 is. Uh, I, th- I think you raised a really interesting point around normality. I remember the first time I met Terry Kavanaugh, like you know, worked on VVV and Super Hexagon, all of these games that feel like they hate you and are cruel. And I was, uh, it, I just, there's just this incredibly round, compassionate and funny guy, this just Irish dude hanging out a thing, and I was like, oh, what's your name? He's like, oh, I'm Terry Kavanaugh, and I was like. Holy crap! You, mm-hmm. you ex- these developers who work on even uh, torturous experiences coming in <laughs> these really normal packages, being normal, decent human beings. It's one of the reasons I love being around games people. I, it's one of the reasons I love being in this industry. It's because you have, again, folks making these incredibly diverse, interesting experiences that don't define who they are. Uh, and in many ways can run counter to it. Yeah, no, I mean, that's what's great thing about indie is that you, you have this, uh, because you're, you're working on a project that's essentially yours. You have the ability to mm. explore facets of your personality that aren't necessarily all in company, encompassing, um, unless you're Ed McMillan, because I think that that's just kind of who he is. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, it's like, uh, yeah, yeah uh, I've, I've been doing the, the journalism thing for a long time, and it's like, you know, the, the one thing I always say is to new people is like, you got to get over your celebrity kind of worship very, very quickly. Cause even like the, the biggest stars are just kind of like average people. Like, um, so I was at a E3, not this year, but the year before. And I, I was in the paradox booth and they asked me if I wanted to see uh, empire of sin. And in there was John Romero. And surprisingly, he didn't immediately make me his bitch, which I thought was what he was known for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it's, encountering mercy from game developers. It's, it's a thrilling sensation. <laughs> no, but uh no, John was John was a very lovely guy. I mean, he was like surprisingly like, you know, humble about his new creation stuff even though he's one of the most famous game developers for um what was the game that John Romero made? Daikatana, right? Yes. Daikatana, this this other indie game called Doom, I think. <laughs> there was something yeah. about an earthquake he made at some point. It was weird. Yeah, yeah whatever. Who, who knows. But anyways, um <laughs> No, I mean, that's the that's the thing is I always find interesting about uh, going to conventions and stuff is like you really do get to meet a, a wide the, the idea of like the of who an indie game developer versus like their Twitter persona versus the person they're putting forward to being in their game. It's almost like you're meeting, you know, seven different people like, uh, you know, Airdorf on uh, Twitter, who's working on the project with us. Is like really different than the air dwarf that we kind of see in the in the Slack, not the in the Discord channels, and the air dwarf that we talk to, and the air dwarf that's like a husband and the, you know, a father and like the the, the average guy, the, the student. You know, it's like it's it's, and it's I don't know. I, I've what I've always found interesting about, especially as indie developers get more popular, is seeing how they balance all of that. You know, it's easy to get lost in one of the characters that you play. Yeah, I, I think one of the reasons, uh, and I think one of the ways to relate to that is just to be deeply intentional about everything you do. So in, in my perspective, I 
have a knowledge of who is Twitter uh, Zolivir, who is podcast Zolivir, what, how do I relate to my players in games? Uh, even my career progression has been a case of aggressively pursuing different opportunities to find what I loved about being in games as opposed to just finding a place to work in games and then finding myself going up that seniority chart because you end up getting this petrica- this petrification process um, along that route where people who are just so excited to get into games, uh, they adopt an identity or they take on a role, let's say, uh, a journalist. And, you know, five, ten years passed and suddenly they can't not be that role or they – uh, they're a senior writer, lead writer on some production, and they're like, shoot, I actually, I'm really tired of writing. I actually care about narrative design, or I care about this intersection of working in games, but because I'm here, I'm stuck. And I feel like that mindset, that uh, dynamic is what burns out people in video games um, as much as any of the other working conditions we talk about, being yeah. trapped either in your own success or in your own career path, you know, going from concept artist to senior concept artist, lead concept artist to art director, when really you wanted to make 3D models all along uh, and just got lost along the way because you had to maintain a job. It's a deeply strange thing, which I think, you know, talking about film and about horror, y'all know intimately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I totally get it. I, I, so what you're saying about getting locked into the character persona, I see it a lot on on my side of the train tracks, especially when you have uh, a YouTuber or personality who's been that personality. Like, angry Joe will never be anything but Angry Joe, you know. Mm. Like he is now Angry Joe for the rest of his existence. Um, and uh, but even on the bigger levels, you know, Angry Angry Joe's known for his YouTube channel. But uh, I was getting. Uh, un- unreasonably drunk with uh, Adam Sessler a few a few years back. Um, I just like met him at an E3 after party, uh, and he was talk- talking to me about how he wanted to move into promotion for. Uh, this was back when he was promoting the uh, Friday the Thirteenth game, and how he's like a mm-hmm. huge fan of horror, and he really wants to get into making more horror films into games, etc. And but he was running into problems because you know people didn't want to hire him as anything more than that guy that was once on G4 TV. And, you know, basically was the face of G4 TV for a while. And he's had incredible success with him as a media personality. But, yeah, it's 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 difficult to it's the the, it's it's hard to so unilaterally focus on one position and then, you know, not realize that later down the line, it might actually screw you over from trying to do other things you want to do. It's it's a um... look, look at Robert England, right? He's a classically trained actor, and he will be Freddy Krueger for the rest of his life. For the rest of his fucking life, and it's uh, it's it's weird. And I think that uh, I mean we can get into a whole discussion about horror fans and that whole weird fandom. Um, but uh, it's 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 just strange that your entire existence can be basically defined by a single role that you did and that you can reshape the trajectory of your career, even if you weren't really expecting it to. And I'll say that's part of the reason I was really excited to be asked to participate in the Dread X collection TM, because I don't want to be known for a single thing. I want to be known for my body of work. I want to be known for, hopefully being a a good person to work with and being a good person in general, but I don't want to be 
the single game guy who gets stuck making animal themed stock photo games for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. I I want to work in horror. I want to work in shooting. I want uh, or shooters. I want to work in all these other different fields and have the freedom to be a whole person. So when you came along saying, "Hey, do you want to make a horror game?" I was like, "I'm currently working on this really adorable game about airports for aliens run by dogs." Absolutely, let's yeah, do it. Yeah, exactly. No, and I mean, I think that um, that's that that you're you're quite right. Is that this is uh, I think for a lot of the people that we have on board. You know, when I when I assembled the package, I didn't say I want 10 people that have made. Um, oh, I think I did forget to say this in the intro, so I might as well say it now is that, you know, the pitch was to make your own playable teaser, make the, the PT of your dreams, but PT in uh, concept, not in content. So I didn't want to just get 10 mm. people that have made the PC version of PT, uh, although I did actually reach out to the guy that made the PC version <laughs> of PT. Um, but he works for a Bloober team now and he was very busy, <laughs> and so he couldn't do it. Um, but uh basically i um i didn't want to get you know 10 people that have done uh there's enough spooky hallway games on the internet so i was like let's let's try to get people that have done other things and i think that uh especially with your game mr bucket uh told me to it's it's a very it's it's most definitely horror but it's a very different kind of horror than what a lot of players are used to seeing and i think that um you know my my personal take on the horror industry right now is that we're uh, long overdue for another shakeup. I mean, we've we've the horror genre has had a number of shakeups over time, and I think the you know the original golden age of horror, which was the Silent Hill Resident Evil era, but then you had another shakeup when Resident Evil Four came out, and then every game was Resident Evil Four, and then Amnesia came out, and every game was Amnesia, and then you have Five Nights at Freddy's come out, and then so many games were Five Nights at Freddy's, and uh, now we're in this place where what's the most popular horror game? Resident Evil Two. So are all new games <laughs> going to be remakes of old ones? Who knows? Because Resident Evil Two doesn't really have a personality other than being a really good game. You know, it doesn't. It's not like a groundbreaking other than the fact that it's just good. Yeah, it, it's it's this interesting place where I think you can even see it with like PC RPGs. There was a point where everyone was making throwback RPGs again. Um, and now the cycle is coming around to where, you know, with things like Outer Worlds, Obsidian is making a Fallout 3 alike. It, it, the timelines are so compressed now that what a re, what counts as a reboot or as a remake can be, uh, dramatically shortened in terms of its timeline. And it's one of the reasons why games is an exciting place to be in, because to be frank, our memories are so dang short that uh, you can take a game design trend from like five years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember when folks were uh, game designers were bringing back um, picking up health packs and picking up armor packs, and it was being heralded as a new wave of game design. It was like, wait, we just started doing like regenerating health and military shooters like five years ago. Yeah, it wasn't this- that long. Is this is this is this the hill we're dying on? Is this the, the new <laughs> uh, wave of game design? It's it is incredibly it is incredibly freeing to be working in every era of games at any time, which is where we are in games right now. We haven't had the time to explore artistic movements. We move on from ideas so fast. We're basically developing every type of game and from in every era of game simultaneously because we never fully explored the ideas that we've left behind. Dreamcast aesthetic, PS1 aesthetic, all of these things are coming 
back because they never really had their time in the sun. And that's deeply exciting to me as a creator who wants to be able to bridge a bunch of tonal and genre gaps and make something special. Yeah, you see, the interesting thing about games as opposed to film is that the, the platform on which we've watched film, uh, while it has changed a few times throughout history, it doesn't um, fundamentally change how you interact with film. Like, um, probably the biggest change in film of the past in the history of film was the ability to watch home media with the VHS invention of the VHS in the, what, 60s, 70s? I'm trying to even remember when VHS started coming out, but... You know, huh. since then, even though it's involved into DVD, even though it's involved into Blu-ray, the, the basic functionality is the same. There might be a little bit of better quality, but, you know, there's, there's, there's no fundamental difference between the, the, the experience of watching Casablanca when it first came out versus the experience of watching Casablanca now. Uh, you might have a better sound system, you might have clearer picture, but the film and the content and the experience, the emotive experience is still the same. The difference about, about video games is that the video games, there's an interactivity to it, which is that when I interact with the game, and so as the technology improves, your method of interactivity is also going to, to change. I mean, that's why when the Wii came out, there were so many different kinds of games for the Wii, and now with VR, we have all these different kinds of ways to interact with games. And um, the thing is, is that the technology moves so fast that it's it's so much more rapid than film or literature. I mean, like uh, books were basically the the same until the you know the the invention of the printing press was the big revolution in how we interact <laughs> with written media. But in 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 games, it's like you know we have a new console generation every seven years, and each of those new console generations significantly changes what is capable of being in a game. I mean, like you know, the original Mario didn't come out that long ago. I mean, it's it's a while now, but I mean, it's, it's not in the grand scheme of things, but the amount that you can do now versus the amount that you could do then does fundamentally change how you interact with the game. It does fundamentally change the experience. It's so it's came out in 1985, which means it's roughly 40 years old. Uh, Super Mario Brothers. Yeah, and that's really interesting. Yeah, that's crazy. And that's really interesting because it's like, well, uh, we still there's still people alive who fought in World War Two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. And and here and here's this medium that's incredibly young but iterating so quickly. It's the flip side of every generation of games existing all at once, and how exciting that is. Is that because we've moved forward so fast in terms of technology? If you look at film, what are the options uh, for making money off of a thing after it's no longer in theaters? You have home distribution. You have now streaming. You have licensing of various elements in those films. I mean, the, the music industry relies explicitly on long-term revenue from uh, whether it's being played on the radio or being sampled in the latest rap sensation. Mm -hmm. Games yeah. has this entire foundation of sustainability, which it com has completely wiped out for itself up to date, except in small fits and starts here, uh, Xbox's pursual of backwards compatibility being one of the bright spots in this darkness uh, because our entire backlogs, our ability to harness them and uh, even on a basic level for students of the medium, have those things be available so we can study our past so we can move forward to the future. That gets eroded every five, six, seven years. Yeah. How does yeah, that I change mean a medium when you cannot have an effective past? Right. No, I, I totally get it. I, I, that's is, um, you know, ironically talking about an effective past. This is 
back when I was in, in college, uh, I taught a class called Video Games as an Artistic Medium. Um, it was a real class at UC Berkeley you could take for real credits. Um, I had to get the curriculum approved for everything, even though I was a student at the time teaching it. Um, we had a I, th- I can't be- I can't remember if this was the 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 episode the not episode the class that we had guest taught by Anthony Birch or the one we had guest taught by Chris DeLeon, but uh, basically they I think it was I think this was Anthony's class uh, because what he was saying is that we don't have the idea that what you exactly what you're saying is that there's no permanence to our history that we have yet to create the game that is like actual like or or have the platform that is actually eternal that it won't like it will, it will actually have some kind of permanence throughout time like you know the the we might have good memories of mario because um, we played mario when we were kids but if a kid picks up mario now he's not going to have that same kind of this is great as we did they're going to prefer their Fortnites or their their whatevers um and and we don't like yet ha- uh, like as opposed to film where you can watch Schindler's List now for the first time and have the same emotive reactive reaction that someone had when they first saw it in like the 90s. Yeah, I uh, I think a big part of that is that because uh, it started out so limited and, you know, like you were saying, it increased a little bit every five years. The only real difference people were able to make was graphical quality, which, of course, uh, gets less interesting as it goes on. But for the past, you know, 15 years, the only thing that games, like AAA games especially, could, you know, think to innovate was, look at how realistic this looks. And who gives a shit? Like, (laughs) I don't care how good, like, like how many hair follicles I can see on a character. It... It's wasted resources. Uh, my yeah. friend Justin had like uh, a really good, or probably still has a really, really, really good uh, PC, and he was trying to run The Witcher Three at max uh, settings, <laughs> and it was it was not going well. It was a uh, you know it was basically a PowerPoint one frame per second, um, <laughs> and he turned off Nvidia Hairworks. And suddenly the game ran at a solid, like, 120 or whatever, maybe 60. And it's like, is that really, like, super important that they render every single hair on Geralt's head? Like, I don't notice a difference. I don't know how many other people do. <laughs> it's 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 valuable when you look at the perspective of... Um, We've continued to do these surveys every few years, but the number one reason most people will cite for buying a new game is the graphics. They saw a trailer. They saw the graphics. They're like, oh, gosh, I got to play this. And then they play it. Uh, It's just why you still see these graphical showcases being these these highlights. But we're hitting this technology ceiling in which, you know, we went from all basically having to agree – that a human face generally looks like a potato and then hope that the rest of the design and the, um, the, 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 the graphical elements evoked the world we wanted to create. Um, we're hitting this ceiling where you, you can only render a face. So realistically there, you can only show the shadow in someone's eyes when, uh, when, you know, their, their pupil dilates. So, 
clearly before those benefits are lost. So we're seeing in AAA, at least on the graphical side, I, I do somewhat disagree about the design being stratified because I think, if anything, the photorealistic graphics have distracted from the innovations they're making in design because those designs are incremental and therefore because we aren't seeing these giant graphical leaps, we aren't paying attention to what's happening in the design front. But just going back to this core thing of what are graphics doing, we're seeing things like control come out and lean hard into that brutalism, surreal shit. And yeah. this is what's pulling people. I do think that is pulling players back in again to some respect. People oh, absolutely. I, um... Saying, hey, this can look realistic, but like, what does your, what are you accomplishing with the realism? I was thinking yeah, I... a while back about how like, uh, like other art mediums, like say painting, like the graphical quality for a painting peaked in the 16th century like renaissance paintings like they already made it look as photorealistic as they possibly could and it became immediately not as interesting and so you know people quickly moved from modern to postmodern and i think that is what we're going to see like you said like control is a very stylistic game it focused on style uh more than uh, graphical quality and i think style is way more important than you know graphics so i'm i'm hoping that games will start to realize that um putting all of their resources in you know making the dirt look as realistic as possible is a waste because eventually because like it just becomes part of the scenery nobody notices yeah. the dirt even if you spent five hundred thousand dollars and as many hours rendering it yeah well jesse the the interesting thing is is that uh is everyone still there yeah yes okay i just started getting a ringing in my ear and i couldn't tell if it was because the headphones died or if my brain's dying so it's just my brain which is good um on my end so you're good yeah just tinnitus um (laughs) so uh what i was gonna say is that um jesse what you're real quick to clarify what you're talking about with the the trans the evolution of the art movement when you said they really quickly uh really quickly is relative term for like that era so it took like 150 years which is quick for back then (laughs) you know but um what you're talking about is like kind of this idea of the the institution idea institutional idea of art versus uh kind of outsider art so there was this this theory for a long time that if you wanted to be an artist then you learned from the best and you learned how to paint perfect circles and you learned how to paint a perfect face and you learned how to paint perfect shadows and perfect everything. And then, you know, once you knew all of that, then you were an artist. And, you know, it was when we got into kind of more uh, modern art, when we started getting to like the surrealist movement and things like that, we were saying, well, no, I don't actually have to do that to make something that looks good. And that's when you, you start breaking down the ideas of the, the institutional ideas of, of what is a game. And the cool thing about not games, so what is art? And the cool thing about gaming though, is that uh, like we, we, you know, the, the E3 knows what it's doing. There's a reason that we have these graphical showcases to sell games. That's still like the mass market. Um, but the, the, the mass market isn't the only market. Uh, interestingly enough, like indie games still exist and those mediums, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're pushing more into 
the idea, the more creative ideas from that end. We don't have to break down the institution of the graphics looking good for indie games to innovate is what I'm saying. And I also think we shouldn't be too hard on AAA games because like, you know, we can all shit on Call of Duty, but like Call of Duty 4 like legitimately did like change a lot about. I, I, I think Call of Duty is a perfect example because every, this frustrates me every single entry because every entry has massive changes. Like Call of Duty Infinite Warfare, uh, had a nonlinear campaign structure in a sci-fi setting called World War II coming back to World War II had this entire new approach to how they handle multiplayer in a Call of Duty game. But because it still has the core of being a Call of Duty game, people was like, ah, fuck Call of Duty. I They're mean, just doing the same Call of Duty thing. I don't hate Call of Duty. I just think that, um, like the graphical quality, like there is a, a very sharp, uh, cutoff. Like at some point, I mean, you just don't even notice the graphics. Like that was, I think the biggest problem I had with Bloodborne was that there were so many intricate details of on every single surface that it all like I didn't even notice it because it, it was so visually overwhelming. And granted, I, Bloodborne is really good and I really love it, and I will still play it and find myself staring at like a little grotesque statue and be like, "That's super cool," but I can't imagine that most players like i mean at some point your brain just can't handle it all and that's <laughs> doubly true for uh you know like rocks and dirt and rubble it's the danger of an arms race right at a certain point having created like for example if c project red having made witcher 3 was like okay hair works maybe a mistake uh, we're going to go in a more stylized direction for Cyberpunk 2077, would there have been a revolt? Uh, I think at a certain point, now that we've pushed that standard so far, the industry as a whole is going to have to be, I'm, I wouldn't say going to have to, but I would say it would be, it would majorly behoove the industry to be very intentional on the AAA scale about where we are pushing our resources uh, and the expectation in the audience that we are cultivating, because right. if we are having our audience believe that every game is going to look as expensive as The Witcher 3 from then on on a AAA scale, it massively limits the possibility of doing something like a Control, which clearly has a smaller budget, but is still doing AAA <laughs> tier graphics and uses them to communicate something entirely different than what if this is a shooter and it looks pretty. Uh, they had a pretty big budget for control, though. <laughs> yeah, they did. And also, it also behooves them because the less graphically intense games can be played on more rigs. Like, well, I, uh, I, 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 I kind of disagree go. with this this whole idea that like games need to stop pushing graphical. Because my point is, is that you have two different markets. Like, you're going to have the people that want to buy the prettiest, newest game, and you're yeah. going to have the 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 companies that are willing to cater to that market. You have the 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 AAA games that are coming out with the the newest cutting edge graphics, and you know that's fine because the indie space still exists to push the other bounds of gaming. That's true. And as long as the market is growing in general, that's what I think is good. Like you know, as long as people are interested in games for whatever reason, I I want the prettiest game. I want the weirdest, newest uh, game. I want the the strangest dating simulator I can. Whatever you want to do to get into games, it's up to you. Fair enough. It, it, I just yeah, equate I, it to like uh, frame rate. Like, at what point does frame rate not matter? Like, there are computers that can run it at 
240 frames per second. But is it worth it? Is it worth all that effort? I mean, they're um, trying to make uh, 300 hertz monitors be a thing right now. It's there's there's certain also commercial things pushing that. Like Nvidia HairWorks, the reason Nvidia HairWorks was in those games is because obviously those games would then advertise, hey, you can use Nvidia HairWorks with Nvidia technology, and that obviously comes with um, the subsidization of development and of that feature and of so on. It's it's a massively complicated industry i don't think that we should stop pushing by any means to make better more efficient uh more impressive stuff in the service of our art yeah i i just do think that it's uh it's that for some time i think we saw this happen from in the jump from xbox 360 and that generation this the seventh generation to the eighth generation where we are now with ps4 and xbox one and so on where the people just went really 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 hard into graphical quality to the uh to the to the i wouldn't say the to the detriment of everything else but definitely that was the, the focus what are we doing with the new generation people are going to and my hope is just as we come into this new new generation that um the question instead is how pretty can this look but what does it do this is why i'm excited for some of the exclusives are already showing off like ghost of tsushima because that clearly has a giant budget but it's using it to introduce effects and mood and style things that uh we haven't seen in games at least rendered at that fidelity yeah i think that is a better way to to look at it like i mean yeah obviously if why not create better graphics but don't do it at the detriment to everything else like i remember seeing the order 1886 and everybody was like Damn, that looks really good. But at what cost? Mm-hmm. The cost was a really well, shitty game. I think that uh, first off, Jesse, just to reiterate your your point here, you're not wrong to not care about graphics. I'm not trying to say that you're wrong for your opinions. No, yeah, uh, know, I, it is an opinion ultimately. It's just yeah. you know. Um, but I, what I will say is that the, the when we're talking about this idea of the histor the historical context, like the historical content of games, like that having that history. Uh, the unfortunate reality of it is that we we need to have a certain level of graphical fidelity in order for it to immediately communicate itself to a new generation. Um, it's like uh, there's just like a certain point where things are like so old and they look so different that it's it's difficult for you on an emotional level to connect to the game when you're so used to new things. Um, and in film, you can see this up until like, you know, pretty much. In the 1920s, I think, is when they really first started to get it right. But even then, there's like certain. Uh, you, you ever see one of those old noir films uh, with like the detectives and stuff from the 1930s or 40s, uh, the black and white ones, and yeah, they yeah. talk. They they talk weird, and it's because that that was what they thought audiences wanted back then, and then it evolved into a more natural style of speaking. And while some people prefer that older style of you know film narrative or whatever uh general there's a reason that they moved away from it which is that it, it disconnected general audiences from it and that's how we got to films now um but I mean, if, ep- you, if, if you even look at horror uh we we always have different standards of communicating things and it's one of the reasons why horror uh works so damn well in terms of being uh profitable Mm-hmm. It, it, what you're trying to say is, as soon as possible is you need to see this and horror can do that with 
found footage can do that with an aesthetic, even by doing a throwback like the Love Witch in a way that, you know, if you're going to communicate, you need to see this with a Marvel movie. Aside from it being a Marvel movie, the threshold for most expensive visual effect is uh, we're there. Mm hmm. Yeah, and it's it's important to note that, you know, with, with horror films especially, it's like, you, you go back and you look at Night of the Living Dead, um, and it, it looks still good today. There's a few minor issues with Night of the Living Dead, which was made in, uh, I believe, 1968, um, the original George Romero one. Uh, and there's a couple scenes, like, especially with the little kid turning into a zombie and then killing her mom with, like, the, uh, the garden spade. That looks a little silly. But overall, the movie looks good. But you have to realize that even though that sounds like a long time ago, like 1968 sounds like a long time ago now, there was like a 100 years of camera development that went into uh, making Night of the Living Dead. You had to go through the, the entire Melier era of film where it was like the, the, the original the, horror movie being uh, the train coming towards the audience. and everybody Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh. That was the original horror film. Or, or uh, Birth of a Nation, where the original horror was, oh, oh no, we're losing, we're losing our country to the to the bad people. Uh, yeah, I guess all our, our, our listeners in the South are going to get a much different opinion of what the bad people are in that film than the than the everyone else. But, uh, anyways, <laughs> hey, uh, uh, you brought this up like I don't know, twenty five minutes ago. You just brought up outsider artists in regards to painting, and it got me thinking about outsider artists in video games and you know i was just wondering who who do you think is the henry darger of video games me are you asking and either of you yeah, open question you, you were the one who, who brought up artistic movements uh, i i think that you would be qualified to answer this because i'm tired uh so okay so for the listeners that don't know henry darger is a guy who wrote, uh, what was it called? The, the, the weird, the, the world of the Vivian girls, the, the weird little girls with penises. Yeah. That are, yeah. Just um, a profoundly like mentally ill, unwell person who was yeah. closed off from the world and has very limited resources and creates this extremely elaborate work. Of yeah. Art. So if you watch the film, uh, velvet buzzsaw, it's kind of a similar telling of that story, which is that there was this guy who never showed anyone any of his work. Um, and then at, at like age 80 or something, everyone discovered it. And they're like, holy shit, you wrote like a thousand books yeah. and, and drew all these paintings. Something and, like 25,000 uh, pages and he died. And like his landlord almost threw it all out. And his wife was like, yeah. eh, maybe we should, maybe we should give it to someone and, and his pieces go for like hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars now which is ridiculous yeah. um uh so i don't think that i think that if in terms of the gaming world uh, i suppose if there truly is one we're not going to find out until after they're dead right well no let me let me let me say this for a second i think that the the world of gaming is different than the world of film uh, not film of uh other art because um, institutional art, like the the kind of the, the paintings and the, the sculptures and stuff, there's like a barrier entry. Like if you and I wanted to really get into art, it's like fucking expensive, you know? Uh, whereas if I wanted to get into indie games, most of those are free on itch.io. Um, but I will say that uh, although I'm a little bit biased, I have seen a number of indie horror creators that I think that if given the budget uh, could make some really cool stuff. Um, I think that... Uh, Kyle, who we talked to uh, a couple episodes ago, 
Um, Zolivir, have you played Outsiders yet? I have not. So I, I will say that uh, Kyle's got this mastery of how to construct a scare that is almost impossible to teach. And uh, I think that with a little bit of a budget, he could do some really, really cool stuff. Um, but other than that, mm. what kind of indie creators? Um, gosh, uh, I'm trying to think about all the stuff I've looked at over on itch.io over the past few months. The problem is, is that it's for every one really, really, really good outsider artist you find, you do find uh, 10 million delusional psychopaths. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this um, isn't an important question. This is just something that was uh, lodged in the, the crevice of my brain. Um, yeah. I, throw I, it out there. I think in terms of not being, in terms of not being a delusional psychopath, but definitely being outsider art, I think soap pop and the work of that collective is deeply notable in how it were, runs counter to not just the production techniques of games, but also um, the typical look of games. So if you look at itch.io and you know Ginseng Hero, it's dueling game about um, mantises and uh, basically anything else they've ever that collective has ever made. They make things that's incredibly visually distinct. You immediately know that's a sock pop game. It's the, the, the conceits are often deeply unique. They make them on short timelines uh, with their unique uh, distribution model via Patreon. Uh, everything about how that collective operates is really interesting to me and to a lot of other people who work in games because it runs counter to something I myself am, am attempting to fight. Uh, we, the, the model of working on a single project for three years and hoping that you get to pay off that second mortgage you took on your house is dangerous and unnecessary. And here comes Sock Pop making a little uh, game about starting a railroad company with pixels that is compelling and interesting and created within two weeks. And you see a path to alternative visions of what a game can be. Mm -hmm. and yeah, I mean, that's, that's one exciting. of the big reasons why I wanted to get this project together is because you have a lot of really interesting ideas that someone could put together in seven days. Like if you look at the, the typical model of game design, those three years that someone's working on something, they're not working like 12 hours a day on that game for seven years. You know, uh, a mm -hmm. lot of times they're also doing other things to pay the rent, et cetera. So it's like, okay, how do we condense this game design process to get the best that someone can give in a very short period of time? And the problem is, is though, is that it's hard to market a game that you made in seven days, uh, even for, you know, just a couple bucks on itch.io. Um, but, you know, if you can take this and, and package it together with 10 other interesting one week projects, well, then all of a sudden you have a, a package that's worth, you know, your, your $7 or, uh, you know, I think future packages are going to probably be five bucks. I don't know if, um, how, how it's all going to work, but you know, the, the, but that's the idea is that to, to shake up the, the, the landscape of what you're doing, you can collectivize the labor of 10 workers to get some kind of project that you can deliver in a week that they can make some money off of. You know, I, I don't expect everyone's going to become billionaires off of this, this project. But the idea is, is that if you can do that month after month after month, then you can have consistent returns and turn this into basically a full-time job. Yeah, it's, 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 the, it's the core question of, is there a way to make game development more sustainable? Right. Uh, smaller budgets and shorter timelines make a hell of a lot of sense. But conventional wisdom says, 
it's not even worth taking, you know, making the one week month long game because it can't be sold. And the more cases there are that that indeed can happen, uh, depending on how it's distributed, depending on how it's marketed, depending on the audience you're serving, like sock pop, their explicit pitch is we make one thing every two weeks. Uh, and the amount of people who support that both via their Patreon and after those games are sold individually, it just creates a greater, uh, it creates a greater cloud of witnesses to suggest maybe there are more ways to play, develop and distribute games than what we are being told. And that's an exciting place to be. Mm, Yeah, no, it is. It is. So I guess we should probably like actually talk about the game that you made for the Dreadx collection, right? At some point. <laughs> oh, right. I, I mean, I, I could continue to talk about production <laughs> practices and games, but <laughs> no, I mean, I, I love it. And I think that this is going to be, especially for like fans of uh, you that are coming to the podcast to listen to you talk about it. I think they're really going to appreciate that. But um, I do think we should let people, you know, know what's coming <laughs> to, the, to the package that we're supposed to be probably. marketing here. <laughs> Probably important, yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, why don't you go ahead and – so the reason I, I had reached out to you uh, about this project is I, I met you at PAX South, um, you know, uh, pre, uh, RIP, the convention industry, uh, in, in one of probably the second to last convention that will ever exist. Um, and uh, you were showing off uh, an airport for aliens currently run by dogs. And when I was talking to you about it, a lot of things came up that I just, I thought were really interesting. Like the, you had created this, um, aesthetic of these, these 2d stock photos of dogs. Um, and you had reached the conclusion that that was better than anything else you could do. And it was like one of those where it's like, do you struggle with the limitations that you have, or do you embrace them and learn how to work with them? And, um, I was like, okay, that would be a great guy to work on this, uh, indie project. So, uh, yeah, I, I called you and I was like, hey, you know, we have this project going on. And you immediately started talking about your idea for this game. And uh, I said, that sounds great. So uh, without spoiling too much about the game, why don't you go ahead and tell us about uh, Mr. Bucket Told Me To. Mr. Bucket Told Me To uh, is essentially a short form survival game. You're surviving on a desert island uh, and you talk to your the tools that keep you alive and you're living in existence. It's. A weird one, you you do take a poop uh, in the shadow of the plane crash that brought you here every day, kind of ignoring the terror at the edge of your own psyche, uh, but you're living, and you're fine, and you're happy. Uh, and then the tools of your survival, the abandoned things that have allowed you to come to this place, start coming back to haunt you. Uh, it's like Castaway. If Wilson wanted you to die a slow and painful death, which is a great way to put it, I loved that the description. Yeah, the the weird thing about it is you mentioned us calling. Uh, you were telling me about the you you did the call. Uh, you said we're putting together this thing, uh, this collection of ten playable teasers. Would you like to be a part of it? And mid conversation, I went to the bathroom and I came back with the pitch. For Mr. Bucket told me to. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the things about how I create games is that I do not put development time, effort, or money into a project unless I know how it works structurally. 
um, not just in terms of knowing the end of the project, but knowing the way in which the way and the rhythms in which the player will interact with the game. If I don't have that, that foundation, then I don't uh, commit to the rest of the project because that's the, the bit that if you don't know it, that's how indie games get stuck in development limbo. Mm-hmm. So for Mr. Bucket, uh, as absurd as it sounds, I got that I worked out that structure on the toilet. I presented it to you and we made it in, you know, seven days. And the design of that game, the way in which it works, everything is identical to the toilet pitch. Uh, It's just, we knew what we were doing and we executed on it. And Mm -hmm. again, speaking about this mindset of in comparison to making the game for three years and figuring out what the fuck it is and the traditional game development knowledge that, or the traditional game development wisdom that you don't know what you're making until you make it and what you're making until you make it. I think that's bullshit. And being able to pull some off again, one of the reasons to take on a job like this is to be able to pull off something like this and say, actually you can create something compelling and precise and focused and effective in an exponentially smaller time than folks would expect depending on the mindset you bring into it mm-hmm. yeah i mean I, I definitely agree having having played the game it's like um there's what you what what it it's it's a functional like the core loop is is there there's a core concept to the game that is then built off of and it's like you know a lot of people the, the, they say that their game started as one thing and they turn into something completely different two years down the line well that's probably why it took or six years down the line it's probably why it took six years <laughs> Yeah, it's it's um, it's it's it, my mindset is we in, in every other industry in, in in books, we at least have the pitch, if not the outline in film. We have a screenplay. Typically, uh, we've got all these planning structures and games because of the, the the rightful the rightfully acknowledged iterative nature of the process. There is this somewhat uh oft repeated uh wisdom to fail fast to mm-hmm. continually re- re- rejuvenate what you're making and i think yeah I, I think that that isn't necessary so getting the opportunity to make this focused horror experience this surreal psychological comedic survival adventure in this sun-kissed environment um mr bucket is one of my favorite games i've ever worked on it is a foundation that could very easily, unlike, you know, the game jam connotation, right? Uh, none of the things made in the Dread X collection are really like game jam things. The, the, this isn't held together with spit and duct tape. Mm-hmm. I could take Mr. Bucket tomorrow and expand it into something larger, but first I need to sleep. Right. It is exciting to be in a place where the thing that has kept me away from uh, traditionally making games within this, within at least this amount of time, you know, seven days, is that uh, I want to be really proud of what I'm making. And if it is special, I want to be able to take it further. And the Dread X collection uh, not only provided that opportunity, but it is, but what we're building. Like, I've seen the other games, I've played some of the other games that we're working with. Like, Every single person brought their A game in an unprecedented amount of time. And I want people to look at that and be as excited as I am, but as as to how 
that can impact the processes that we take for granted in terms of bringing really exciting things to uh, the market. Yeah, I don't think it's so. So what I, I like what you're saying about this because it's it's praising of me, which I love. Uh, but uh, one of the things I think is interesting is that you know all of the games are submitted now, <laughs> um, except for uh, uh, one of them, which is is taking a little bit longer because uh, the guy ran into some you know life stuff, and that's totally fine. We're not going to screw over developers because they're not working on our very specific timetable. But um, what uh, the thing is is that you know now that we're done. The, the first question, like I'm getting questions of, okay, when are we doing the next one? Like people are excited to be working on another project like this, which I, I, I don't typically see developers finish a project and then are so eager to get started on the next one. They're usually like, I need a year to like not be on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is the, the let's, let's bet my entire life on, uh, the three year, $200,000 moonshot absolutely is going to burn people out what what do we think uh in whether it's indie or whether it's millions in the case of triple a uh the the pressure alone the pressure of time alone three years of your life is incredible so if we extend that out to you know something like the dread x collection where uh you're working with alongside good collaborators and alongside a good publishing team, uh, bringing something interesting to life and doing it in a way that uh, makes you happy. Mm-hmm. Of course you want to do another one. It's, it's, it's a, it's, it's emblematic of a perspective. I do want to see at least brought to more of the industry. Uh, mm-hmm. It is looking typically in games with the, it, there is what's known as like postpartum depression or launch depression. After you release a game, you get this. Sometimes it lasts a week. Sometimes it lasts months or years. You get your brain having offloaded that task, having brought it into the world, takes a fucking nosedive. Yeah. And because I launch and ship a lot of stuff with the way I work, I deal with that nosedive a lot. I make a game, I work on it, I'm bringing it into the world, I have post-launch stuff to do, whether it's fixing bugs or whatever else, and as soon as that game is out, I just get this immense depression, and everyone in games gets that. Mm -hmm. In the case of the Dread X collection, the timeline, the type of things we're building, and the immediate effect of bringing those things into the world, that's the shortest postpartum depression I've ever had on a project. And it's directly related to the conditions under which it was built and the people under w- with which it was built. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I'm just trying to think about, you know, what you're talking about with the mental dive that people make, that people take. And, um, you know, the, the, that kind of stuff is what we, we usually, we don't usually think of our developers as humans. And um, that's one of the reasons why with the Dread X collection, I really wanted to do these podcasts. I really wanted to get... Uh, I mean, people will be seeing kind of the more media blitz that we do when the trailer comes out and I start um, assigning you all, all of the developers, like cattle to the interviews that they need to do for it and stuff. But um, you don't really see that human side of a lot of times of developers. Uh, you know, it's it's I'm, I'm, the, my brain is kind of jumping to, you know, Fez and you know, Phil Fish of, of Fez um, and his kind of, you know, fuck it. 
with when he was like, I'm done. I don't want to do Fez 2. I'm done. And um, everyone's like, oh, well, you know, screw that guy for just giving up. But like, he, he first off, he doesn't owe the world anything. Like, he doesn't like, have to like, it, it's he, he's not a, he's not a, he's not a, like a person that you insert food into and video games come out. He's not a machine. And uh, I can definitely see how the stress and, and the pressure of the release and just not feeling anymore. Why would anyone be forced to do that? Why not? Instead of trying to say we should force developers into this process, uh, this dehumanizing process that's ultimately harmful, why not try to change the process? Let li- line up with the line it up with the production cycles, right? You mentioned earlier a lot of people can't do this for a living. Uh, if you take four years, three four years to bring something to the market, unless it does incredibly well and you then need a you know minimum uh two three month period to recover to become human again that isn't the type of schedule that behooves a sustainable business or being able to do something full-time or even being able to be happy while you do it Mm -hmm. so uh when we see things come back like the ps1 revival that's going mad right now i've seen people ask hey why why are people so attracted to the ps1 it's one of the last times in games where the fidelity of games was such that we could make things pretty quickly pretty cheaply at least with modern technology applied to that time because at the time they had to like make their own physics and whatever it's a whole thing making a ps1 game now you can make you can pull off incredibly impressive stuff quickly and cheaply and keep bringing more things into the world because there's always going to be more ideas than time might as well have as many in this plane of existence as you can Mm -hmm. because you only get one shot. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And I think that, um, gosh, I mean, I just, I just hope a billion people buy it so that we can all, uh, take our (laughs) high minded opinions and then just retire to Cancun. (laughs) It's yeah, like, I, uh, I'm, I'm making a joke, of course. I would, of course, take all that money and put it into a new project and not at all spend any of it on illicit drugs and, and, and women of the night. Of course not. It, I would be disappointed if we did not at least spend a week in Cancun, provided uh, the planes <laughs> will let us go. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, there's... There is a, a path with the Dreadaxe collection. The reason I want people to play the Dreadx collection in Mr. Bucket uh, in particular is not only because I'm incredibly proud of what I put together with that team, Ben Chandler, Tom Benita, uh, and RJ Lake, of course, with the special assistance of, of folks like Ted Henschke. Uh, <laughs> I promised all the developers I'd buy them a pizza if I get in their credits. So I just earned two pizzas because I could <laughs> credits here. But yeah, I... I I'm not only incredibly proud of what's happening here, but I want people to, uh, in playing this game, realize that the amount of benefits you gain from having a focused project are exponential. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I agree. Anyways, um, 
Xavier, did you want to tell us anything else about uh, your project or Mr. Bucket or any of your previous projects? Because unfortunately, we do have to start going pretty soon because we have to record our interview with uh, Triple Duke next, which his game looks mm, super fun. That's going to be real good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's a funny guy. I, I was going to say his real name, but I, don't, I haven't asked him yet if he's okay with his real name being used. So I'll call him Torple Duke for now. Maybe we'll all be able to refer to him as his real name soon. But If folks want to follow my mad rantings about we can make games faster and cheaper and not destroy ourselves on the rocks of existence, uh, you can do that at, at WRIT Nelson on Twitter, at Rit Nelson. You can follow my work at patreon.com slash strangescaffold, where I am mid-development on an open-world comedy adventure game about catching flights in a universe, uh, simulated universe of stock photo dogs called An Airport for Aliens, currently run by dogs. And finally, uh, yeah, please pick up the Dread, collection, Dread X collection when it comes out, because it represents the combined creativity and focus of ten of nearly a dozen incredibly talented people uh, bringing their A-game to horrifying, uh, sometimes hilarious experiences. I think it actually is a dozen people, because we had the guy that created the, uh, the launcher for it all, and then we have the story writer for the wraparound, which, uh, you know, first time you're hearing about it here, uh, we haven't revealed any details about that yet, so... Oh, right, yeah. Yeah. yeah a dozen people be. bringing their A-game. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, of course, if you want to learn more about uh, an airport for aliens currently run by dogs, uh, the best uh, recap of the game that I know of is uh, a story written by uh, Andred XB for <laughs> Ultra Indie Spotlight. It was like one of those that I saw it and I was like, I need to write a piece about this just immediately. Um, but uh, yeah, so if you want to learn more about it, there'll be a link to that article in the description. There'll also be a link to the description of the DreadX collection below. Um, guys, at home, listening joining us for this experience. Thank you so much for listening today. Uh, if you want to hear some of the other episodes that we have, uh, this is the fourth one that we've done so far. I'm, I'm hoping it'll be coming out in the next couple of days here, but we had uh, David uh, Shemansky, who uh, is also known as Dusk Dev last week. Uh, we had Kyle Frost, who's also known as uh, Malik, which um, is, is actually just his like pseudonym spelled backwards. I just figured that out. Um, and, uh, you know, and then uh, we also, the first week, who did we have the first week, Jesse? I remember. Uh, John of the Scythe. Ah, yes. The Scythe John, of, John of the Shred from Scythe. John of the Shred. By the way, that guy's music. Really good. Really good. Fantastic stuff. I need yeah. to figure out how to convert all those AU files so I can listen to the rest. Yeah, he's, uh, he's, we, I need to actually hit him up after this to get the music for the trailer. Uh, cause, uh, he's doing that for us. He's a really talented guy. I think we got crazy lucky with him when he's like, yo, I'd be willing to do music for like anyone's projects in the future. Just let me know. Like, cause I, I really like, if you, if you listen to his, uh, episode, he talks about how his music is now being featured in like, um, like the WWE and in like sporting events and things like that. But he just got those contracts right before the virus hit. So <laughs> like, he's just like super screwed. So I think we got it. We got like in with him at a really, good time um because uh, i think he's incredibly talented uh anyways guys thank you so much for listening in we got uh, a next episode coming up soon with uh torpal duke here we're probably going to be releasing both of these at the same day so uh because I, I i looked at the traffic when we released two and it was better so i like that um because i'm a i'm a numbers guy so anyways <laughs> um thank you so much all for tuning in and uh go ahead and uh click the link to find out more about the DreadX collection and uh Bye. Bye. Bye.
Video games.